0: Hi there and welcome to the Thin Places podcast. Please make sure to subscribe and like the podcast if you're watching on YouTube. And feel free to check out the Thin Places blog at malcolmduncan.org. We've also put a link to the podcast in the description. Welcome to the Afterlife series with Malcolm Duncan, episode 6, A New Heaven and a New Earth, part 2, Examining the Throne Room, Heaven's Grandeur and God's Greatness. Last uh, Wednesday evening, we explored the new heavens and the new earth. We looked at the nearness of heaven now and some of the ideas that are contained in Hebrew cosmology, as you do on a Wednesday night. We also um, explored the idea that the new heavens and the new earth are connected and that the current creation is Connected to, but different from, what God will ultimately transform us into. We reflected that God's great creative purpose began in a garden called Eden and ends when the whole earth becomes a garden city. And that the decisive moment that holds all of that together is God's recreative act of resurrection that takes place in a garden just outside Jerusalem when the Lord Jesus Christ appears to one of his closest followers Mary, as a gardener, we discussed that that means that what we do with our creation now matters, what we do with our earth, our bodies, our lives, our priorities, our morals, our ethics, and our choices, justice, kindness, compassion, grace. This theology of heaven and earth and how they meet and the new heavens and the new earth gives us something to live for now. It delivers us from the fatalism of an evangelicalism that says you're saved for heaven and there's nothing to live for. It transforms that. We reflected that the holy land will become a holy earth where sin and shame and separation will be no more. So tonight I want to come back to the question of the new heavens and the new earth. And look at it from a slightly different lens. You will need a Bible. If last week we were reflecting together on the eminence, the closeness of God, the nearness of all of God's reign and rule through this Hebrew idea that I shared with you last week, the rakia, the the thin separation between heaven and earth then this week I want to reflect with you for some time on the vastness and the greatness of God and of the idea, the concept of heaven, of his kingdom, of his throne. And I want to do that by reflecting with you on something that the Bible says a little about. It's a very important idea. We'll look at the New Jerusalem next week, if we can, and then uh, a few weeks later when we continue with the series. But the Bible has this image, this picture at the center of the new heavens that I just read to you at the beginning of our meeting, Revelation chapter 4, and it's of a throne room. It's of a space and a place Where John describes things that are almost indescribable. And I want to take some time and think about that with you this evening, this sense of the vastness and greatness of God displayed to us in the Bible's images around heaven and the throne room of God and what that might mean for you and for me now and for what that means when we die. And Turn with me to a couple of passages of Scripture, and there are several that we're going to read together, and then we will reflect on several more. 1 Kings chapter 8. This is the story of the dedication of the temple and Solomon's prayer. Verse 22, then, this is Solomon's dedication prayer, then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all of the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands to heaven. He said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or in earth beneath, keeping covenant and steadfast love for your servants who walk before you with all their heart. The covenant that you kept for your servant, my father David, as you declared to him, you promised with your mouth and have this day fulfilled with your hand. Therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep for your servant, my father David, that which you promised him, saying, there shall never fail your successor before me to sit on the throne of Israel. If only your children look to their way to walk before me as you have walked before me. Therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you promised by your servant And my father, David, but will God indeed dwell on the earth, even heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, much less this house, which I have built, have regard to your servant's prayer and his plea. O Lord, my God, heed the cry and the prayer that your servant prays to you today, that your eyes might be open night and day towards this house, the place which you have said, my name shall be there. That you may heed the prayer that your servant prays towards this place. Hear the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Oh, here in heaven, your dwelling place. Heed and forgive. And that's an image that pops up right across the Bible. God is close. Closer than a brother. Closer than our breath. And simultaneously... God is enthroned in heaven. He is majestic above all other things. He is all powerful. He is all knowing, all seeing. What does this idea of the throne of God and the throne room of God have to do with life after death? Everything. Because it reminds us of the God that we serve, it reminds us of the God that is this person has these characteristics, lives in this sense of timelessness, greatness, and glory, and who has come and made his way known to us. The idea of this throne room is important for us because it transforms how we live, and it can transform how we die. It gives us a picture of God as king. The Bible gives us a picture of God occasionally walking in heaven, We have this image that signifies or bounces across the scriptures of God's reign and rule that is given to us through the image of his throne, through the metaphor of a throne. But the question is, is the throne of God just a metaphor? Is it just an image? Is it just a picture? What's going on when you read the Bible around some of this stuff? strikes me that if you turn with me for a moment to John chapter 14 in the New Testament, we will find um, a very straightforward statement made by Jesus to his disciples the night before he is killed. Verses 1 through to 3. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. There's a a location. There's a there's a rooting of what Jesus is doing for his people somehow in time, space, and in reality. The idea of heaven is not just this thing that is close, this idea or this concept. It is a place. And at the center of it is this image of God's reign and rule exhibited to us through a throne. It's the place where his glory dwells, we know from Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. It is the place where we will be perfected forever, according to Hebrews 10, 14. It is the place where those who are in Christ discover all that he is, according to John chapter 1, verse 16. At the beginning of the service tonight, I read to you from Revelation chapter 4. And we read in that passage in verse 1 that John saw it. That he was brought to the door of it. We're not told that he entered it. But somehow he had a powerful encounter that brought him to this space. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians for a moment. Chapter 12. I'll give you a chance to find it. Because I need a chance to find it too. Verse 1, it's necessary to boast nothing, this is Paul, is to be gained by it. But I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a person in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that such a person, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. Was caught up into paradise. And heard things that are not to be told, that no mortal is permitted to repeat. On behalf of such a one, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weakness. It's almost certain Paul is talking about himself there. That he saw heaven. That he was caught into a space. Whether it was physical or spiritual, we don't know. But he saw something. In Revelation 21, verse 1 through to Revelation 22, verse 7, we're told that this place is beautiful. It is transforming. 1 Timothy 4.8 says something similar. We're told in Revelation again and again, this is a place of worship. It's a place of encounter. It's a place of thanksgiving and praise to God. Look at Revelation chapter 19 with me for a moment. Verses 1 through to 3. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power to our God, for his judgments are true and just. He has judged the great whore who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they said, Hallelujah. The smoke goes up from her forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who is seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, and all who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty thunder peals. Doesn't it sound like Revelation chapter 4 that we read at the beginning of the meeting? Crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. To her it has been granted to be clothed with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. This is a place of great glory, of great worship, of great intimacy that is almost impossible to describe. And it is a current place. It's not something that's going to be created one day. It is current. It is what God is dwelling in now. Last week I talked to you for a moment about what's called dialectical theology. The idea that that two apparently conflicting ideas hold each other in tension. Do you remember that? And I talked about um, various things, but one of those dialectical tensions is imminence, closeness, and transcendence, greatness. God is at one and the same time close, right here. In fact, right here. And great. And there. And enthroned. He is both at once. That gives us courage and confidence and hope. And there is no better picture of that greatness and vastness than the idea of his throne. Described across scripture in various contexts, and I'm going to take a few of them to look at with you this evening to help you get a sense of what this might mean. What is really interesting is, very rarely is God described in the Bible. So, in the three passages that we will look at in a moment, Isaiah chapter 6, Ezekiel chapter 1, and in Daniel chapter 7, and Revelation 4 that we will return to, the throne is described, the surroundings are described, but God isn't. Well, there's little said about him. There's a little said about it, but not much. That's partly because we need to remember that these words that we are going to read, are written by Jewish people, most of them. And embedded in Jewish theology is the, this very simple idea. You can't describe God. You can't make an idol to him. You can't make a representation of him. You can't even use his name. Because to do so is to tread on extremely holy ground. That's why Psalm 104 describes God as dwelling in um, a brilliant and dazzling light. It's why Paul describes God as um, dwelling in light that is unapproachable in 1 Timothy 6.16. And it's why when you read the verses that we will read in a moment together, you discover that God's image, God's description, although it's limited, is really rooted in this concept of being inexplicable dazzling lights bright shining brilliant radiant lights but what we do have is a description of that which is around him and when we catch that when we allow that to impact us something really powerful happens in us in isaiah 6 we'll don't look at it yet in isaiah 6 god gives isaiah a vision Of his throne room. In Daniel 7. God does the same thing. In Ezekiel chapter 1. God does the same thing. In Revelation chapter 4. God gives John a similar vision. There are other snippets of this. That are scattered across the scriptures. 2 Chronicles 18. 18, Psalm 9. Psalm 11. Psalm 45. They all hint at this. As does the book of Hebrews in a couple of different places. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. Now the main point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Hebrews chapter 12. that's densely packed theological language that we're going to explore in a few weeks, line by line, because it is so life-giving and so powerful. Heaven is God's throne, we are told in Matthew chapter 5, verse 34, and Isaiah chapter 66, verse 1. But how can God have a throne if God doesn't have a body? John 4:24. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So as we think about this, the first thing to note is very straightforward. The descriptions of God in both the Old and the New Testament, of his character and of his heart, are what we describe as anthropomorphisms. They're metaphors that describe God in human language so that we can understand what he is like. God isn't physically a rock but the Bible describes him as a rock. God isn't a high tower. He doesn't have a gate. It's a, it's a description of him. So be careful when you think that God has an arm or God has a hand or God has um, physical manifestations that look like yours. That's, that's not what the Bible means when it uses language like that. So does that mean that God doesn't have a throne? That the throne room described in Revelation 4 is as metaf- as a, as a metaphor. That heaven is a metaphor. In fact, some people suggest that. They will suggest heaven is just the metaphor of all metaphors. It's not real. It's just a description that's trying to help us understand what God is like. It's trying to help us understand what eternal life is like. I'm not sure about that. I know that... The Bible uses the language of thrones and throne rooms as a metaphor. But I think they are more than that. I think the fact that they appear in John, in um, Isaiah chapter 6, in Ezekiel chapter 1, in Daniel chapter 7, in Revelation chapter 4, and there's such clear consistency around it points to the fact that there is something else going on here and that Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be there with me. Where is that place? As I said at the beginning of our Bible studies together on the afterlife, where is the resurrected Jesus now? Where's his resurrected body? It's somewhere. I can't explain where. Where? I can't describe it. I've tried to describe the reality of heaven and earth and the reality of his presence, but we run out of words. But here are some of the ways, before we get to the descriptions themselves, here are some of the things that we could take from this metaphor of the throne of God that might help us live well and die well. First of all, What do thrones conjure up for you? What does the image or the picture of a throne conjure up for you? It's not, I spent a couple of hours um, last week just sitting with a picture of a throne on my computer thinking, what does that say to me? Power? Rule? Rule? Psalm 103, verse 19, talks about God ruling the heavens, ruling the earth, ruling all things. Sovereignty. Being in charge. When our kids were small, one of them used to say to the other when they got on their nerves, You're not the boss of me. Well, our political culture is not the boss of me, it's not the boss of the church. God's the boss of the church. God's the boss of his kingdom. God's the boss. A sovereign speaks of that. Transcendence, greatness, majesty, honor, but also judgment. That's where decisions are made, it's where consequences are faced. Where sentences are passed, the Bible has got plenty of images for that. Psalm 9 verse 6, Psalm 89 verse 14, Revelation chapter 20 verse 11. But the Bible says more about this throne. It says that around this throne there is praise. There's worship. Revelation chapter 14 verse 13. Psalm 66 verse 2. In fact, Revelation 14 is a powerful picture of what's going on around the throne of God. Let me read a section of it to you. Then I looked and there was the Lamb standing in Mount Zion and with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters. That happens repeatedly in Revelation. And like the sound of loud thunder, so does that. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures. There they are again. And before the elders. There they are again. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who have been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women for they are virgins. These follow the lamb wherever he goes. They have been redeemed from humankind as first fruits for God and the lamb and in their mouth no lie was found they are blameless there are pictures of worship and praise and glory and authority and celebration around this throne and eternal life flows from this throne the very last chapter of the bible revelation chapter 22 verse 1 listen to the words carefully Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from where? Flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. What I think is remarkable, beautiful, is that this throne... Is all of that? life, purity, holiness, hopefulness, glory, sovereignty, transcendence, transcendence, power, judgment, but also and without this, we couldn't even think about it mercy. This is where mercy is obtained. Hebrews chapter four, verse 16. Hebrews chapter nine, verse 24. In fact, <clears throat> let me suggest something to you, which we're going to go on to explore in a moment. So important is this idea of mercy that in order to understand the throne of God and why that matters to us now and why it should encourage us in our lives, we have to root it, the picture of the throne and the throne room of God, not just in our imaginations, but in the Jewish story of worship. And the Jewish story of worship is rooted In two particular structures. One of those structures is the tabernacle. And the other structure, and without going into all the detail of it, it could be suggested that the second structure was permitted by God rather than ordained by Him, is the temple. The tabernacle, God gives specific instructions to Moses to build. You know what it is, or do I need to explain it? It's a tent that was made for the children of um, Israel as they wandered through the wilderness when they left Egypt. And they worshipped in it. Um, And God gave very specific instructions about what was to go in it and what wasn't to go in it and how it was to be built and all the rest of it. Years and years and years later, David wanted to build a temple, a structure, and he didn't get to do it, so his son built it. Whether he built it for God's glory or for his own or for a mixture of both is up for debate. Now, God used it, God permitted it, God inhabited it, God visited it. But there's no hint in the Bible that it was God's first choice, just like it wasn't God's first choice that Israel had a king. But they both became pictures of something And this is where we sometimes get this wrong. It's not that heaven is like those. It is, according to the biblical narrative, that they look like heaven. The original thing is where God dwells. The original structure, whatever you want to call it, is where God dwells. At the center of the tabernacle was a box. And on the box were carved angels, and it was overlaid with gold and ornate and beautiful. And it is called the Bemis Seat, or the Mercy Seat, or the throne. And in the picture of the ark, two things come together. God's judgment and God's mercy. God's authority and power and God's closeness. And at the very center of the throne room is a throne which is at one and the same time a symbol of his power and a picture of his mercy. We receive both mercy and grace from him that we worship as the all-powerful one. This throne matters because, according to the Bible, it is the highest place. It is the center of all things. It is the place from which life flows because it is the place where God, from where God rules. And you might say, well, it doesn't feel like that now, Malcolm. No, but one day the world will bow before this throne. Every knee according to Philippians chapter 2. And the Bible identifies two personalities at that throne. God and God's Son. It's not clear at all whether there are two or one. It's hard to describe sometimes. But the language of thrones, I mean, the language of Scripture is clear. This is a symbol, a picture of the greatness and the glory of God, not in the future, but now. So when you sing your song out of key, when you and I stand at a graveside and try to sing a hymn that nobody knows the tune of, and think, whose idea was this? We are joining with worship that is taking place around the very center of God's essence. That changes how you approach those things. It changes how we live. Now, here's the thing. What else does the Bible say about this space? Well, according to Ephesians chapter 2, if you are a Christian, you are seated with Christ somehow in this space. Not tomorrow, not in six months, not when you get your life sorted out, now. That's remarkable. So, what I want to do now with you is think about this throne room a little more reflect on it and see where we might end up and what God might help us to understand about it let's look at the three passages of scripture that I mentioned to you earlier on and see what these three pictures might give us to understand this Isaiah chapter 6 Verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance above him, each had six wings, with two they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew, and one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth will one day be full of his glory. That's not what it says. That's not what the Bible says. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, the pivots on the threshold shook at the voices of those who called, and the house filled with smoke, and I said, Woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst the people of unclean lips, yet my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphs flew to me, holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. The seraph touched my mouth with it and said, Now what now that this has touched your lips, your guilt is departed, your sin is blotted out. Mercy Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and he who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep listening, but do not comprehend. Keep looking, but do not understand. Make the mind of this people dull, and stop their ears, and shut their eyes, so that they may not look with their eyes, and listen with their ears, and comprehend with their minds, and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitants, houses without people. And the land is utterly desolate until the Lord sends everyone far away. It's a picture of the greatness and the power and the glory of God. Eternally existing, always there. Spread across the canopy of the earth. The glory of the Lord fills the earth. Can you see it? I can't. And yet it is there. This language that Isaiah uses is important. He says his robe, God's robe, fills the temple, the dwelling place, the structure built for God. It doesn't just fill a room, it fills the temple. In other words, Isaiah is impacted by the presence of God in this moment. And this glory fills him He's not just seeing with his eyes. He's seeing with every part of him. And every part of him is impacted by the glory and the vastness and the greatness of God. And in this picture of the throne room, in this picture of God's reign and rule, the earth is infused with his presence. Everything is impacted by him being there. His glory fills it will not fill at some point in the future we evangelicals and pentecostals and charismatics talk a great deal about entering the presence of god finding the presence of god walking into the presence of god what if the presence of god is right here right now always available what if we don't need to run somewhere to find him And our theology needs to be changed so that we're not looking for him somewhere. Instead, we're saying, you're here. Unveil my eyes. Open my mind. Help me to see who you are. Even in the moment of death, your presence is there. What about Ezekiel's vision of this throne room? It's complicated. Ezekiel chapter 1 If I was to preach on this with you, I could scratch its surface and it would take me about two years and it would feel as if I'd done a miserable job. Ezekiel sees a vision of heaven and of the throne. And in it he sees four living creatures um, living creatures with four different faces. He sees wheels He sees angels. He sees winged creatures that are heavenly beings. Verse 26. And above the dome over their heads there was something like a throne. An appearance like sapphire and seated above the likeness of a throne was something that seemed like a human form. Upwards from what appeared like the loins, I saw something like gleaming amber, something that looked like fire and closed all around and downwards. From what looked like the loins, I saw something that looked like fire, and there was a splendor all around, like a bow in a cloud on a rainy day. Such was the appearance of the splendor all around. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it I fell on my face and I heard the voice of someone speaking. He can't describe God. Just like Isaiah can't describe God. He can't fully explain what he sees. So he explains the throne. He explains what's around him. And what Ezekiel says is that he sees a throne. Now, without going into all of the detail, the word that is used here in Hebrew is slightly different to the word that is used in Isaiah because this throne moves. It seems to move around a bit. It seems to be able to move in separate directions. It's a chariot throne, or it's a throne chariot. Merkabaz, the Hebrew word. Why does that matter? Why does this sense of movement matter? Well, when Isaiah wrote, he was writing at a time of political uncertainty. He was writing at a time when Jerusalem's future was not clear. And just a few years after he had written, an empire called the Assyrian Empire swept down onto Jerusalem and onto Israel and took some of the northern kingdom away. Isaiah's vision of the throne room of God came at a time when the Jewish people need to be re- needed to be reminded that no matter what happens, God is still in control. His glory is with you no matter what you face. That's why he saw it the way he did, I think. Ezekiel's vision of the throne room probably happens at the end of the 6th century BC, or the beginning of the 6th century, about 597 BC. That matters because in those 20 years between 606 BC, and I'm sorry that this is boring, but it won't be in a minute. 606 BC and 584 BC. The southern kingdom of Judah were taken into captivity. They'd seen the northern kingdom go already. But in three tranches, the tribes of Benjamin and Judah were taken from Jerusalem, where Ezekiel was, to modern-day Iran and Iraq. They were taken into captivity. And the temple got destroyed. Where's God's throne if the temple that he's supposed to live in gets raised to the ground? Where's God's sovereignty when all the plans and purposes of our life are utterly turned upside down and we don't know what to do? Where are we left with this idea In Ezekiel chapter 10 and chapter 11, this chariot throne of God leaves the temple. In other words, to Jews who have gone into exile, who have lost their temple, lost their identity, lost their place, and don't know where God is. Where's God when the temple in which he dwells has been destroyed? Ezekiel says... He's already left it. He's still on the throne. The temple might have got destroyed, but the throne didn't. Because the throne can't be destroyed. His reign and his sovereignty is not impacted when politics falls around us, when our worlds fall apart, when everything seems to be going wrong. God is still in control. He is still on the throne. In fact, in Ezekiel, if you read it, we don't have time to do it, God gives Ezekiel a blueprint of the temple and it is rebuilt. But from that moment on, it doesn't have the same place in Jewish theology as it once had. The Bible tilts its words and its language away from the throne of God being in the temple to the throne of God being in heaven and God being in control. That takes us to the third vision, Daniel's vision of the throne. Daniel chapter 7 verses 2 to 8. I wish we could bring sleeping bags. (laughs) I, Daniel, saw in my vision by night the four winds of heaven stirring up the great sea, and the four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then, as I watched, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet. Like a human being and a human mind was given to it, another beast appeared, a second one that looked like a bear. It was raised up on one side and had three tusks in its mouth among its teeth and was told, arise, devour many bodies. After this, as I watched, another appeared like a leopard. The beast had four wings of a bird on its back and four heads and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the visions by night, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong It had great iron teeth and was devouring, breaking in pieces and stamping what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that preceded it, and it had ten horns. I was considering the horns when another horn appeared, a little one coming up among them. To make room for it, three of the earlier horns were plucked up by the roots. There were eyes like human eyes in this horn, and a mouth speaking arrogantly. As I watched, thrones were set in place. And an ancient one took his throne, his clothing, again, not described. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was like fiery flames and its weeds were burning with fire just like Ezekiel's. A stream of fire issued and flowed from his presence. A thousand thousand served him and ten thousand times ten thousand stood attending him. Like Revelation, the court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I watched then because of the noise of the arrogant words that the horn was speaking. And as I watched, the beast was put to death, and its body destroyed, and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time, as I watched in the night visions. I saw one like a human being coming with the clouds of heaven, and he came to the ancient one and was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and kingship that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingship is one that shall never be destroyed. If Isaiah's vision speaks of stability and Ezekiel's vision speaks of God's persistent presence, then Daniel's vision speaks of both mercy and judgment and ultimate victory that flows from the throne of God for God's people. And these are all nigh. And then we jump to another enthronement. The enthronement of Jesus Christ. Who in the New Testament sits at the right hand of God, is enthroned at the right hand of God. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Chapter 8, verse 1. Chapter 10, verse 12. Romans chapter 8, verse 34. In the Gospels, Matthew 26, 64. Mark 14, 62. 16, 1. Luke twenty two sixty, 60. They all point to this enthroned Jesus. Where does that enthronement take place? Well... Particularly in John's Gospel, but in all four. The throne of Jesus is the cross. There's an earthly enthronement at the cross. Where this great, merciful, powerful God, with his glory and his dominion and his transcendence and his eminence and his majesty, looks like a human being being defeated in death. But that's only one part of the enthronement story in the New Testament. The enthronement begins at the cross and ends at the ascension. When Jesus is taken to heaven and takes his seat at the right hand of God on high. And the throne room of God now has God and God's Son enthroned. Righteousness and judgment look very different when looked at through this lens. Hope looks different. This enthronement, that's why this all matters. This enthronement... Transforms your pain. It transforms your loss. It writes a different story for our weaknesses and our vulnerabilities and our feelings and our losses. This throne room is no longer simply detached, away over there somewhere. It is brought close to us in the mercy and tenderness of Jesus Christ. And do you, know what that means. Nothing you can nothing you go through is irredeemable. Nothing we go through is irredeemable. No experience can destroy us when placed into God's hands. No loss, no heartbreak, no pain, no sorrow, no cancer, no sickness, no illness, no disease, no no challenges, no fears, nothing can take us away from him. Because that throne room has impacted us. And that's the throne that is described in Revelation chapter 4, verse 5. The Bible has this powerful way of describing the same thing from two different perspectives. Do I feel this week like I'm enthroned or sitting enthroned with Christ in heavenly places? Not a bit. I would rather stay in bed all week but I am convinced that I have been transferred. I am held by him. That is not simply a future promise, that's a present reality. Which is why death cannot separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. In the very same chapter where that is talked about, God's throne and greatness is described. So, back to where we started as I try to wrap all of this up somehow. Revelation 4 describes John's vision of the one sitting on the throne. It describes jasper and carnelian and emeralds. It's taken directly from Ezekiel and from Daniel. You can't understand Revelation's picture of the throne room without reading Ezekiel and Daniel. In Acts chapter 2, verses 32 to 33, in the very first sermon of the church, the Apostle Peter describes Jesus as enthroned, borrowing from Psalm 110 and Psalm 132. In the end, I don't really care. It doesn't really matter to me, and I can't really answer whether Jesus' throne and God's throne are different thrones or the same throne. They're in such close proximity to one another, it makes no difference. But I know this, they reign in life and in death. Today, tomorrow, and every other day after that. And that's why Jesus could say to his disciples in Matthew chapter 28, as he was commissioning them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore you go. He was saying it from a position of having been enthroned. This mission that God has called us to is possible because Christ is enthroned. We may not see him that now like that, but we will one day. You might have had to bury a loved one. You might have had to say goodbye to someone. And as you're standing by a gravesite or in a crematorium, it doesn't feel like that. It feels entirely the opposite, like your world is collapsing in on yourself. I'm not sure that as the disciples watched Jesus dying, they understood that this was a coronation. But that's exactly what Colossians chapter 2 describes it as. He made a public spectacle of the powers of darkness, kneeling them to the cross. That's why you don't need to be afraid of death. That's why the hope of heaven impacts us today. I would like to have talked to you this evening about what else is in this throne room and around this presence. I would have liked to talk to you about paradise, mentioned three times in the New Testament, but we don't have time. I would like to have talked to you about the general assembly of the firstborn and who they are. We'll do that in a couple of weeks. I'd like to have stopped and said, think about the angelic host. Myriads upon myriads, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of angels joining together in worship of this great God. I'd like to have reflected with you on who the 24 elders are in Revelation chapter 4. I don't think they represent Israel and the church at all. I think they probably represent the heavenly equivalents of the temple's layers of worshipers. Worshippers. And priests. But I can explain that to you in the new year when we look at end times a little more closely. I'd like to have talked about the lamps of fire that never go out. The hope that can't be snuffed out. The the grace that cannot be extinguished. The life that cannot be taken from us. The crystal sea that shimmers with all of its beauty. The river of life that brings forth its harvest every month. The cherubim and their power. (laughs) But we don't have time. These do not describe what will be. These describe what is. This is the reality that all believers will one day enjoy and all believers who are in Christ now can enjoy. It's in this throne room that mercy and majesty meet. It's in this throne room that mercy takes a seat. It's from this throne room that the glory of God fills the earth. This glory no longer contained in an earthly temple, but contained in every believer, because we are the temple, carrying the very presence of Almighty God with us from his throne room. It's this glory that keeps us going. This is where mercy triumphs over judgment. And that's why we can face death without fear. It's why when suffering yells at you, I get the last word. You respond, no, you don't. It's why when your life feels empty and everything seems to have been lost, there is still hope. And what is... Kelsey, come back because you're going to help me with this. Not, that wasn't the question. What's the common thread that runs across all of these images? God is speaking profoundly to me about this at the minute and I'm trying to work out what it looks like and I'm I'm finding it difficult. What is the thing that we can do tonight? What's the thing that you can do right now? There's something that you can do right now that connects you to what is happening right now in this throne room. And it is not evangelism as important as that is. It is not mission as important as that is. It's not preaching as important as that is. It is not praying as important as that is. It is worship. Open your lungs and sing. Speak out the praise of God, whether you feel it or not. Make a choice, because when you do that, you are entering into something which is eternal, that has an unending, limitless impact on us. And I don't know why God has designed it like that. But when I sometimes on a Sunday morning and on a Wednesday night, more, more often Sunday morning, Sunday night, I stand here just to check to see how people are, to see if I can work out who's not here in case they need a bit of help or support. But sometimes I always I often I do look around too and I think, gosh, I wonder and I'm not making a judgment based on whether our hands are raised or down or any of that. They're all such superficial judgments, don't you think? But I do wonder sometimes, do we get what we're doing in this moment? Do you understand? I want us sometimes say, do we understand what we are doing when we worship God? That we are stepping into a space that can change the world, that can break strongholds, that can transform our thinking of ourselves, that can reorientate us away from the stuff that we think really matters to the stuff that really matters. And we can sing or we can speak our prayers thinking about a hundred things that need to get done. But when we turn our attention to him, we are joining with myriads upon myriads upon myriads of angels. We're joining with the four living creatures. We're joining with this remarkable spiritual community. We're joining with the saints that have gone before us. And we are joining the song of the redeemed. And we can decide not to and think about KFC instead if we like. But this is a moment where you and heaven can be closer than anywhere else. So let's worship and exalt our great God.